podcast is brought to you by QT Faithful to your monthly hymnal devotional, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the majestic soundtracks from the Tarantino verse. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, making his second hymnal devotional appearance, co-host of the Bachata Talk podcast, Mr. Frank Hannon. Together, we will be giving a thorough examination of the tracks that reside on Tarantino's third film, adapted from Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch. I'm talking about the Jackie Brown soundtrack. Welcome back, Mr. Hannon and May Tarantino. Be with you always. And also with you. And uh, good <laughs> to see that you, uh, you know, the church was able to help the floods subside there in Florida so you can get back with us. I reached out to Tarantino. He, he did. He sent some thoughts and prayers your way as uh, <laughs> as all good religions do. And look, they worked. You no longer have flooding issues so we can record. Yeah, maybe he was punishing us earlier. <laughs> Oh right. boy! Hey, so third time's a motherfucking charm. It's the second third time. The third yes, episode, yeah. And you'll be on again for something else soon. Hey, you know, give it away pretty I'm soon. All, yeah, be back it. on it too. And then you might disappear again. Like that's what happens. Like some people like are on in these big chunks and then they disappear for like a year. Like we never hear from them again. <laughs> <laughs> So it's hey. like wrestling. It's like what happened to the it Rock? It is exactly, exactly. <laughs> the Rock was at WrestleMania, right? And then you like don't see him again for like three more WrestleManias. And he suddenly decides he has to show up because yeah. he has to promote something. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Right, it's, it's that's the only reason they're there. Out. It didn't like John Cena just recently wrestled too. Like out of the like, he hasn't wrestled in like fifty years. It feels like all of a sudden John Cena's at WrestleMania. And you're like, what yeah, the fuck's right. he doing here? A win-win situation. They try to, you know, have the business going on there. This is what it is. So, what's new with the Bachata Talk podcast? Anything new since we last talked? Well, um, we're at thirty-nine. I don't know how much since the last episode that is. Uh, we we uh, we haven't been able to do every single week, you know, but it's okay. I, I'm still proud of what we're doing. Thirty-nine, and actually, it was recorded on my thirty-ninth birthday, April seventeenth. Wow! So, wow! Yeah. Happy belated birthday, because it's nine days Thank past. You. I need to start yeah, writing so, these down. I always feel bad. I don't, some people I know, some people I don't. Tell, tell Siri. She'll remind you, I guess. <laughs> Fucking Siri. It's funny <laughs> you say that. This is real quick off topic. I was watching, uh, before we recorded, I was watching the latest episode of Ted Lasso. And on Ted Lasso, uh, someone Love asks. Love that show, by the way. Yeah, Love someone that show. asks her something and says, hey, stupid. I have a HomePod mini right on the side of this computer. And she goes, and who am I asking is talking? I'm like, shut the fuck up. You don't listen to me. You hear it on a show, you fucking piece of shit. Funny thing is, is when it happened, I forgot that I'm watching the show that's on Apple 
TV. So it's, it's an Apple show. And I'm like, wow, yeah. you know, they actually used it. And I was like, oh, of course they did. And I bet the people who did it were like, watch, if it's anywhere near anyone's HomePods, they're all going to answer. It's going to be the funniest thing ever. <laughs> Fuck you, Ted Lasso, for doing that to me, sons of bitches. <laughs> Probably just lost all our listenership. Like, fuck these guys. <laughs> we're here to talk about the Jackie Brown soundtrack. You were on the 25th anniversary special, and you're filling in for one of your castmates on that episode. Miss Sin Electric was originally reached out to me to do this episode. She has had some construction, or maybe she's just too good for us now because, you know, she got to meet Tarantino and a hand of music, so now she's like, you know, she had better things to do. Uh, but no, she wasn't able to record because they're doing some construction. So I was like, you know, we had such a good time on the Pulp Fiction hymnal devotional. And I remembered you were a huge fan because you, you were on the Jackie Brown 25th set. Who better than to bring Frank Hannon back in? And we're going to do this motherfucking. So those people who didn't listen to the Jackie Brown 25th, which was last year, sons of bitches, why don't you let the listeners know or remind them what this film means to you? We'll get to the soundtrack in a second. But what does Jackie Brown mean to Frank Hannon? Well, um, I was already, uh, the first book that I ever read that I gave a fuck about was uh, an Elmore Leonard book. You know, like, um, I might have mentioned this on the episode, having book reports and all these things in school, it just felt like I have to, oh, you have to read this, you have to read that. And and uh, when I got to make, uh, to choose the book that I could read, I, I chose a, a book that got my attention, which was, uh, I think it was Swag, a book called Swag from Elmo Leonard. And so, yeah, when I found out that Tarantino was doing a, a movie you know, adapted from Elmo Leonard. I just felt like it was the best of both worlds for me. So I was all in. I loved everything about it. I loved how different it was from Pulp Fiction. So definitely one of my favorite uh, Tarantino films. And since you live in Florida, you must have been able to read that before they started banning everything. I don't even know if you could read these books anymore. I mean, there might be, you, you know what? You can't read it as Jackie Brown because they changed a white female from the original yeah. Booker and Punch to, God forbid, a black female. And so yeah. in Florida, that's a no-no. Blasphemous. <laughs> it's blasphemous. <laughs> Wait till they find out that Jesus in the Bible oh isn't white. Goodness. I know. What are you going to do? It'll be it's quite a conundrum. Age. Quite a conundrum. <laughs> so we are going to talk... <laughs> Uh, so we're going to talk about the amazing Jackie Brown soundtrack. And as I have said, if you go through his actual soundtracks, the first three, it's almost like they're competing with themselves. You know, it's almost mm -hmm. like they really are just saying, like, hold my beer. You know, like <laughs> Reservoir beer. Dogs, like you know, introduced us to what was what's to come. You know, and as I've said on that, like Reservoir Dogs, the good ones are good and the OK ones are OK. Then Pulp Fiction came out. You and I talked at nauseum about that. And then so, you know, after Pulp Fiction, maybe people were a little let down by the movie Jackie Brown, which, I mean, when a movie like Pulp Fiction comes out, it's hard not to be let down. You know, I've said the two biggest movies that probably don't get as much praise as they deserve is Jackie Brown and Death Proof. Yes. And they both are bookended by amazing films, right? So you've got Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown comes out. What follows it? Kill Bill. So if we go the other way, Kill Bill opens up, Death Proof comes out. After that, it's Inglorious Bastards. Those are some motherfucking wow. hard movies to jump. You know what I mean? That's true. Like <laughs> it's like checkers. You're getting just fucking kinged. You just keep getting yeah. jumped off the board. Those are tough movies, you know, not fall behind. I know. It's like it's like like comedians and, and karaoke people that they're like, oh, I don't want to go after that guy. You know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Great analogy. Great analogy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's unfair for both those films. Unfair, you know? Uh, I think Django is the one that finally 
broke that that mold where it was able to follow up in Glorious Badgers to be so amazing. And if some may say then the last two, whatever, we won't get into those. Those are debate for another time. But Jackie <laughs> Brown's soundtrack, there's strong, strong belief that it may be his best soundtrack, you know, for some people. The beauty of the R&B that we talked about from Pulp Fiction, he just does, he doesn't even fuck around anymore. He pretty much stays pretty <laughs> strong in R&B. You know, he just like, you know what, this worked really well in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You know, we don't really, ha- we have no surf rock that in this at all. Yeah, you know, yeah. So he, he bypasses surf rock, at least um, that makes the, the the soundtrack, and he just stays pretty heavy with the R and B. Something that's I love that you said that because like it's almost like he knows whether it's different genres or not exactly what fits into these movies. You know what I'm saying? Because like yeah. the the R and B fits heavily into Jackie Brown. Yeah, you know, and it, but it also worked with Pulp Fiction. But he he I love how you were talking about how he would have different kinds of music. Like he would have like a the Mr. Lou and then the Jungle Boogie and mix yeah. them together. How, but that worked perfectly. So it's crazy how he's able to, to even if he's missing a bunch of different genres or having heavily on one genre, it still works uh, perfectly. Like he knows where to make that choice. And even though this is kind of an homage to black exploitation, if you listen to the, you haven't heard it yet, but those people listen to this will have the Jackie Brown episode I did where we just talked about Foxy Brown and coffee, the influences it had on, on Jackie Brown here. Jackie Brown is a homage, but it really is not a black exploitation film at, at all because he's really oh, yeah. staying true to the Elmer Leonard. But if he didn't change, because her real name in the book originally was Jackie Burke and she's a white woman. If he doesn't change that and we don't get Pam Greer, I don't think we get this soundtrack. Even though mm. we do get the amazing Samuel L. Jackson, who Ordell Roby is black in the book as well, I don't think we get the same amount. Maybe, obviously, just like we do when we have Ving Rhames' character, when we talk about Pulp Fiction, whenever he's on screen, we definitely, or even when Sam is on screen, we lean into the R&B aspect because it, it fits their characters. If we only have Ordell, and even in this movie, Tarantino's we're going to get to, he flips it on us in the soundtrack. He plays a country song when we're showing Odell, yeah. which you don't expect. But I don't think we get as much R&B heavy if he doesn't have Pam Greer and change Jackie Burke to Jackie Brown and then try to pay some homage. Because obviously, as we'll talk about at the end, well, he didn't make the soundtrack, but he he does pull some of the music from Fox, or from uh, Coffee into this film. So, you know, like it's amazing that just a little change of the character's name and who they are, set this film up and this soundtrack up to be the soundtrack it is. And I, yeah. and this is yeah. not being mean, I don't think it works, this movie, even though I know the original character, and I read the book as, you know, Rum Punch when I found he was doing, doing this, I love the fact that we have a black woman as the lead as opposed to a white woman. I think it was the right move. It's, you know, some people wouldn't say that, but I think this is the right fucking he, move. He didn't want a Karen, that's what it was. <laughs> I mean, it just would be a different film. It would just be a different film. Man, but you know, it's cool when you say how it's not, you say it's not like an homage because it's really what he's doing is references. It's like, oh, yeah, he's references. Yeah. Exactly. But Pam Grier's character doesn't get exploited in this film. They don't, yes. she is the one exploiting yeah. people. She doesn't get exploited. Nice. I like that. And let's yeah. be honest, and I, this is not trying to be mean, but I don't think Ordell Roby goes along with this, even though it does in the book. I don't think he, in reality, he goes along with this white woman unless 
she's more of the Melanie character and he has been seduced by her and like she's a really, you know, sexy, voluptuous kind of thing where he's seduced by her. I, I don't think he goes along with the whole thing, but because it's Jackie and it's Pam and he feels more of a connection because they're both of the same race and they from the, come from the same place, mm. they feel more comfortable. He feels more comfortable with her because she can be more straightforward with him. Where I don't think it would have played nearly as good. If we'd had, wow. a, like you said, a white woman, I just it's just yeah, not gonna yeah. play. I don't, you know, people can say whatever they want. I'm gonna say on them right now, there's no way that in reality, in a movie sense, especially when you have a character like Samuel Jackson playing it, it would have to be a whole lot more sexual leaning. It would have to be more exploitive as opposed to when Jackie gets to do it when we have Pam. Grant. That's true because the way they play the characters, it's almost like they have an understanding of each other, like they know each other, you know. Versus, yeah. uh, you don't know if, if maybe he would have been more dominant, but he couldn't dominate Jackie nope. in this in this film, you know? <laughs> As he learned scared. the hard way. <laughs> what do you think it is? I think it's a gun press against my dick. <laughs> yeah, man, for real. Oh, well, let's jump right into it. And now it's time to reach under your pews and pull out your Church of Tarantino hymnal as we begin our devotional with the soundtrack from Jackie Brown. This soundtrack was released on December 9th in 1997 by Maverick Records. It features 17 tracks from various artists and has a running time of 51 minutes and 6 seconds. The soundtrack has been certified gold in France and the UK and it sold half a million copies worldwide. I'm enjoying talking about the opening songs that we've picked. So, bypassing true romance, because as I said on that episode, we just did From Dust Till Dawn. From Dust Till Dawn feels like in a kindred spirit to the Tarantino verse. True Robert Rodriguez is the one who chose the music. And if you got to listen to the episode, I have my feelings that when we get the Death Proof, I feel we don't get the Death Proof soundtrack without Tarantino being introduced to stuff in Austin, Texas from his friend Robert Rodriguez mm. and some okay. of the music that Robert Rodriguez brings to him from that film. And I think it becomes even heavier apparent when we get to Kill Bill. There's a lot more of the Chicano music brought into, That's especially true. the second half when we get to the Western yes. half. Yeah. of Kill Bill. We get to Volume 2 soundtrack. And, I mean, Chingon plays the end, and that's one of my favorite songs. I might be showing my cards, since I don't have to do the questions, but I'm showing my cards. It's one of my <laughs> favorite songs that they do. But I'm loving the openings that we get. And so we had, from Reservoir Dogs, we get Little Green Bag. Amazing. We have the Miserloo into the Jungle Boogie from Pulp Fiction. We have Dark Knight from the Blasters from From Dust to Dawn. And now we open this one up with Bobby Womack across 110th Street. Bobby Womack was an American singer, songwriter, and musician. In 1972, he wrote and performed all of the songs on the soundtrack for the action crime film Across 110th Street. The first track on that album is the title song Across 110th Street, which reached number 56 on the Billboard Singles Chart and number 19 on the R&B Chart. In 2009, Bobby was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The minute that motherfucker kicks in, you just know you're in good hands. You go, yeah. okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Jackie's just walking. It's a yeah. full-on tracking shot. We watch Jackie Brown walk through a fucking airport. We won't see her for another 30 minutes, but the song and her presence make such an impression on us that, you know, we're both getting older. You're 39. I'm closer to 50. <laughs> I'm 47. But as we're getting older and you look back at Jackie Brown, it grows on you. You mature with the film. Yes. And it's this song. Now, when you look back at it, man. And we're both of an, of an era where I grew up listening to this because it was the music of my parents. This was their era. This was them in their mid, late 20s. This was, you know, 
towards the end of the Motown era, this is their music. This is the stuff I would hear. So I have that secondhand knowledge. You know what I mean? Like now kids nowadays are like learning about 80s or 90s and all that stuff. That was my secondhand knowledge was the 70s music. You know, because I was a kid of the 80s. So I was young when the 70s was playing. But we would hear that. I would hear this music when my parents were cleaning the house. Or you know what I mean? They'd be like on the weekend yeah. kind of stuff you'd listen to. So when I would hear it, and the first time I hear it, I'm like, oh, that's a cool song. As I get older, it almost becomes, it feels like an anthem. You know what I mean? Like, because even though Across 110th Street is a song about trying to survive the ghetto in Harlem back in the 60s and 70s, the story is of struggle and surviving struggle. And if anyone from any walk of life has struggled, Across 110th Street, as he says, is a hell of a tester. Yeah. Like, it really, as you yeah. get older and you've gone through the trial and tribulations of life and you've survived certain things and you listen to Across 110th Street, you go, God damn. This song really yeah. packs a punch. And what it also does is we might give a nod to Rodriguez again because, as I said um, from Dust of Dawn, at that point, the song I said about the blasters, uh, Dark Knight, it opens the, the movie. It also is the first song and the credits. Never had that happened before in the Tarantino verse. The first Tarantino film that does it is this film because Jackie Brown mm. opens with Across 110th Street and we close with 110th Street. What I love about it, it's just like what they did with Dark Knight. Or we know with Dark Knight, yeah, like Batman. It's like they did with, <laughs> with From Dust of Dawn with the song Dark Knight. Exactly. Is Dark Knight tells the story of what's going to come up. It's going to be a bloody night. Shit's going to happen. And then they close it by reminding us of like, we just survived the dark night kind of thing. Mm. Same thing here. Across 110th Street. It's going to be a hell of a tester. And then at the end, it's reminding us, you used to cross 110th Street. It was a hell of a tester for Jackie. She made it through. Yeah. It might bypass people, but if you really love film and you really enjoy that kind of shit, this getting down into the weeds kind of shit, it's that kind of knowledge that Tarantino did this. As you go, damn, I got to respect that. So yeah. your feelings on what is the opening song and the closing song of Jackie Brown with Across 110th Street. Well, uh, first I want to say, like, one of my favorite things about doing the panel was that when you talked about how that was like an anthem, you know? I really I really enjoyed that. And, and, and uh, not just saying this because I want to be invited to another one, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I get to really appreciate sometimes the songs in a different way. It could be because of where I'm at in life. You know, I think that has a lot to do with it because it's film, agree. it hits me differently as time goes on. But I uh, definitely love the way that you like, oh, the lyrics here. There's no accident. You know, like when you explain that, it makes a lot of sense. And um, this this song as an opener, to me, it's perfect. The whole scene, the way it's done, how you see her. I remember I used that. I used to have that. Um, I, I still have it. The, the the anniversary, I think it was a 10-year, where you could choose, like, that it gives you facts as you watch it. Yeah. Of the film on the DVD. So I remember watching it. Just I, I can picture, like, Jackie Brown on the on the walkway and little bubble facts, like, like pop up video, like they used to yes, have. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. The old VH1 <laughs> pop up video is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 then the thing is, is that the closing, and I said this on the episode, it hits me emotionally uh, mm -hmm. watching it again because when she's singing it, even though she's lip singing, I feel like I can hear her or I can feel what she's singing, even though she doesn't sing the whole thing. For those who you know watched mm -hmm. the movie, everybody at the church watched it. Even though she only sings part of it, I feel it. That's how I feel like she's feeling song, and I want to sing with her. And so it definitely, I think both, it works both ways. Definitely. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's the, it's the proper casting because Jackie is in her late forties. Jack keeps saying Jack. She's right. I did this on the other episode. Pam is in her late forties. Yeah. 
she has gone through this shit. She may have been a you know a black exploitation queen in the seventies, but yeah. life gets harder for her. She's not in these big films. She doesn't get the breakout role she probably deserved. Obviously, because of Hollywood wow. and its whitewashing of everything, yeah. the black actresses did not get the forefront, and Jackie or Pam did not get her come up and said she should have what she was due. And so here she is singing at the end of the song, and while her character is singing about. Just surviving this unbelievable pickle she put she got herself put into, and how she was able to come out of it. At the same time, there's got to be a part of Pam as she's lip syncing the song, thinking, "I went through a whole lot of shit, and I'm here I am again." And it would actually help her, you know, through the '90s. She made quite a few films. You know, she was doing yes. pretty good through her '50s. You know, again, obviously now she's in her '70s, so you know, it, it's tapered off again here and there. But I'm hoping she'll be in the last film of his, at least in a cameo. Oh, at least, can you imagine? Oh my god! Here's what I'm hoping. I know we're kind of tangent from it. I want him to do what the Avengers do. I want a little fan service. When you went to Avengers Endgame or you went to the Avengers, those two big movies, Infinity War and Endgame, there was some fan service paid. I want a little fan service. I want mm. Jackie Brown or Pam Grier to show up. And I want the crowd who's a Tarantino fans to lose their fucking mind because she's in it. I want to see these yeah. people come back. You know what I mean? She doesn't have to be the star, but I want to I want to see her come back and everyone get excited that there she yeah. fucking is again. The, you the know? thing with Tarantino is that when he does, once, as we know, he has had uh, characters that have been one scene, and it's like the most memorable, you know, <laughs> yes, something like that. Yes, right? the gold watch, and, and like you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But even his cameos are like you know unforgettable sometimes. Like those who know his movies know about Steve Buscemi and and, and Pulp Fiction. Yeah, you know, and the and the meaning behind it and stuff like that. You know, those little mm-hmm. details. It's like yep. wow, wow, man, I got me hype. <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping. While this song hypes us to open it, it jumps to our second song on the album. Now, look, I'm not going to say tracks anymore since my friend who I know is listening right now, Mr. Pat Fournier, like to shit in my cereal in the last episode because technically I'm not doing it in track order. I'm going by song order. See, yes, there's some talking going on before these. So thank you, Pat, for fucking <laughs> taking a shit on my stuff, you piece of shit son of a bitch. <laughs> but he's french what do you expect shout out, shout out to him shout out fucking pat all right anyway <laughs> our second song are the brothers johnson strawberry letter 23 this song was written and composed by snuggy otis in 1971 for his album freedom flight the brothers johnson covered it in 1977 on their album right on time at the time band member george johnson was dating otis's cousin when he came across otis's freedom flight album leading his band to cover the song. Their rendition of the hit peaked at number 5 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and reached number 1 on the Soul Singles chart. The song can also be heard briefly in Pulp Fiction when Vincent and Jules are in the apartment building to retrieve Marcellus's case, as well as on episodes of Six Feet Under and Nip Tuck. Now this song plays... Mr. Odell Roby and Beaumont have. <laughs> it's the coolest way that someone can fire somebody as long as you're the person doing the firing and not the one yeah, being yeah. fired. However, he does put Beaumont in that dirty ass trunk. <laughs> yeah. Hits him in the head a bit with the fucking trunk door. And... <laughs> the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> oh, Chris Rock or Chris Rock. Chris Tucker has never been better, in my opinion. He's just never been better. He just was spectacular in that. And he got to improvise on a Tarantino dialogue. How, how, like, talk about bragging rights. Well, you know what? You write dialogue, and obviously he's writing it for two characters. He's trying to write dialogue that from the area that he grew up with and people he grew up with. So he grew up with a lot of black people. So he's trying to write authentic dialogue that would fit. However, yeah. he is white. 
So he can only pull from experiences, correct? I mean, he's you know he mm. can pull from p- things he's heard, people he knows. Mm. But if when you have two black gentlemen standing there together, and they may know how to riff on something better or in a mm. vernacular that's more c- current to the times that they're in, you let him do it. Yeah. You know, like it's Samuel Jackson. The man speaks your dialogue like it's like if Shakespeare. Shakespeare wishes he had someone <laughs> like Samuel Jackson <laughs> to do his dialogue, right? Like Shakespeare is probably like motherfucker. Where was my Samuel Jackson? Samuel Jackson is yeah. amazing. So you let your Shakespearean actor, who you're the guy who does it the best, do it, and then. You let this amazing young actor, comedian at the time, let it go, and he doesn't overdo it. He plays it perfectly, and the two of them are phenomenal together. Sometimes you have to put trust. And, you know, Tarantino wrote some things, but sometimes you have to have trust that, you know what? You may have written something that's amazing, but what if the opportunity arises where these two actors that you have paying to do this may find it an easier way or a better way to say what you have written? I think that's the humble part of it, that people don't see. I think that's the humble side of Tarantino people don't see. Because obviously he talks so greatly about his own work that people are like, oh, you know, he thinks he's the best or whatever. But, you know, when you, it's good to trust in yourself. That's what people like Ali and some of the greatest artists had to do yeah. to be successful, to truly believe in themselves. But I think that is a humble part because when he talked about the line that he improvised and I heard in an interview, he laughed as he was talking about it. So it's like he allows himself to enjoy the process and be like, okay, I'll go with that. Yeah. You know, and I think that is the humble part of it. Sometimes you can help an actor, but sometimes let the actor help you. And I think Tarantino, at least from what we people have said, they enjoy working with him. So he is obviously is a person who is easy to work for as opposed to just a tyrant. And people are like, fuck that. I'll get that experience out of my fucking way. And here is Ordell doing his best O.J. fucking Simpson impersonation like two yeah. years after putting on the isotoner gloves to yeah. kill a motherfucker. Younger audiences are not going to get that reference. But damn, if that's not like for the time frame that what's coming in, that's not a little bit of a like nod to O.J. Simpson and that whole shit. Like, God yeah. damn. And how many isotoners did that dude have? How many did Ordell <laughs> Roby have? He had an isotoner, a set of gloves, isotoner gloves, and a kangle for every fucking occasion. Like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. All his gun money is going to that. No wonder he's having all these problems, man. He's got too many isotoners, too many kangles. For real, for real. <laughs> but this is a, a theme that I think is going to go throughout the rest of not just this episode, but through all the rest of them. Songs that should not work in a scene given the context of what the scene is, but they were. Just like yes. the very first one was Reservoir Dogs, Stuck in the Middle with You during a torture scene. That shouldn't work. Works beautifully. Strawberry Letter 23 shouldn't work. It's a love fucking song. And yes. sure enough, it works. Here he is murdering a dude in the back of his car, chilling out to a slick R&B love song. He just... Clack, clack. That's it. It's just, yeah. Uh, and I love that, again, these are the things that make it great about the, both those moments I just talked about, is Tarantino lets the song play in the car, and a lot of times that song stays on the soundtrack and doesn't disappear or follow off like it should. So we hear it in the car. When we leave the car and we watch him drive and the camera cranes up, the audio gets quieter as he goes further away. Like And just like when yes. he walks out of the warehouse yeah. and we kind of lose the song and then come back yeah. in and it's back where it is. That is, it makes it actually the scene work better because you're brought into the realism of it. You know, like you're not taking out like, okay, this is a movie scene. You kind of feel like, oh, this is reality. Like, this is exactly what would happen. If I watch you drive off to shoot somebody in the back of a car, I'm like, I can hear it in the distance. Like, you know, I wouldn't be hearing like my headphones. You're like, that motherfucker just turned on that good ass song, but it's not faded away. (laughs) As you drive by, I go, 
He may murder somebody. I think he's. <laughs> he wasn't in the car with a lady or anybody. He's got strawberry yeah. letter twenty three on. I think he's shooting someone in the trunk. <laughs> I should ask Frank if he had someone in the in the trunk. Or for my English listeners, the boot, the boot of the car, the boot. Hey. Oh, but that leads to song three. And one of my favorite artists who unfortunately passed away, not because of COVID, I don't believe, but during COVID, like right as we got into the COVID uh, shutdown, it's Bill Withers. And who is he and what is he to you? This song was written by Bill Withers and Stan McKenney and is the third track on Bill's 1972 album, Still Bill. The song has been covered by Gladys Knight and the Pips, Creative Source, Valerie Carter, Amy Shell, and Diocello. It was also featured in the video game Grand Theft Auto 4 and in a 2002 ad for Uber Eats. This song plays at the bar while Lewis and Ordell are talking about Melanie, Simone, and Sharonda, yes. which is interesting because that speech happens because Lewis is feeling a little, he's feeling just, uh, just a little, you know, uh, but he's still fucking upset <laughs> about fucking his friend's girl. But it's interesting because as the song is playing, very slyly, Lewis asked Ordell, you know, you know, Melanie, what is she to you? And if you listen to the song, it's really, it's like just the reverse. Bill Withers is asking a girl he's walking with who passes by another brother. And he's like, they kind of look at each other. And he's like, I think this motherfucker knows my girl. And he's asking her, who is he? And what is he to you? <laughs> Bill Withers was amazing, man. Um, I haven't I haven't heard a song that I couldn't appreciate. You know, I know I haven't heard all of his work, but just I haven't heard something that I didn't appreciate in some way from him. He's amazing. His voice is amazing. He's I think he's such an underrated artist. Sure. Hopefully, if you if you really enjoy the soundtracks, go and check out Bill Withers stuff. Check it out. It's fucking fantastic. You be you're gonna be surprised how many songs you actually know of him and probably yes, didn't know it was exactly. him. Exactly. But I love the song. We've talked about him, and I've talked before. It's one of those songs that plays in the background, the bar they're at, and because of later he'll go back and he'll talk to Jack at that same bar. That's the I think it's the Cockatoo Lounge. That's that's Ordell's. I think that's I know that's Ordell's (laughs) fucking place. But the fact that he goes there, I mean, just just the atmosphere. That's exactly what's going to be playing there, especially in the '90s. Even though it's late '90s, the age range to which the crowd is, it's probably more of your mature 40s to 50s crowd who were probably, mostly probably black people hanging out there. So if they're in their late 40s, early 50s, the 70s music is what they're going to grow up to at that, that late in the 90s, right? So this is the music they would have grown up to as kids or in their 20s, and this is the stuff they would have been like listening to you know, trying to hit on a girl, and now, now, now that they're yeah. older and seasoned, they're kind of like, "Bitch, who are you being with? <laughs> like, who is he, and what is he to you?" <laughs> Again, it's one of those subtle. Even though the we're flipping the lyrics, it's one of those subtle songs that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, that you know, fits. like you yeah, always say, fits. like you always say, there's there's no accident. Yeah, none at all. I love it, and I love the scene. I love that Lewis doesn't realize that Ordell felt bad for him and threw him some threw him some ass. He, he yeah. knew, and he even tells him that. And he, he knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the way he started, he's like, you know, da, 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 da. like the way he says it, like, like I did yeah. that for you, kind of thing. Yeah. This is this is where Ordell makes his mistake. Lewis proves his loyalty. I mean, yeah, he, you know, he got some, but he felt bad, <laughs> and, he, and he asked, and you know what? He could have lied to him. He could have blown it off, but he yeah. asked him. 
and he found out. And later, Ordell's the one who ends up killing Lewis. And Lewis, even though Lewis is an idiot, Lewis was always had Ordell's back. He even said, yes. do you trust Melanie? Ordell's the fool who had this whole thing fucking because he was too trusting of these ladies. He thought he was the man. And because he can lay the pipe to them or something like that yeah. or smack them, he was either fucking them, he was either deep digging yeah. them or slapping them. No, and he thought, I was going to keep him in check. And if you realize that the only girl who doesn't double cross him is Sharonda because he gets her hooked on crack or something. Melanie's trying to double cross him. Oh, what's the girl Simone. who does a Simone. Simone double crosses him immediately and Jackie Dang, double crosses his ass. All three girls, three <laughs> of the four girls double cross his ass instantly. Yeah. The only one who does no, is the young the girl. Thing, we didn't talk I, well, I didn't talk about it on, on the on the panel episode, but yeah, you're so right. Lewis even he even looks uncomfortable any when whenever he sees what uh, Melanie's trying to do. When yeah. she like tries to put her 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 toe on his cup later mm-hmm. on when she puts her, her feet on him after they've already, mm-hmm. you know, fucked. Um when she brings up double crossing, mm-hmm. like he looks uncomfortable. Like he actually, like you said, he's being loyal because yeah. through their backstory, they've known each other for years. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know? So I, I'm glad you brought that up. That's pretty cool. Yeah, wow. and he proves it in this moment too that he's loyal to him. That you know, yeah. again, Lewis is an idiot, and unfortunately, he gets himself she's sucked like, into smoking weed her for a little bit. You know, yeah, a little bit, a yeah, little bit. yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> oh, oh De Niro is—I don't think people appreciate his performance in that movie enough. I don't think they do enough. It's it's beautiful. I think I think uh, a lot of people. Well, first of all, a lot of people don't know how good this film is. But, you know, when I watched it the first time, what the hell did I know how good he was doing? Yeah. You know, as a kid, first of all, and then even as adults, the people who are already are still in the mindset of Pulp Fiction, oh, I want that, and then they get Jackie Brown, they're still judging the film before appreciating how good the film is. Agreed. Agreed. They're thinking that Ordell and Lewis have to be... Uh, you know, Vince, <laughs> Vincent Vega, yeah. and you know, they, they, that's what they're that's waiting for. Point. It's yeah. not, that's not the same guys, and they don't that's need to be the point. same guys. Yes, nope. Samuel Jackson is playing, is in the film again, but it's a whole different character. He's yeah. not Jules. Jules is off playing piano. No, he's not, I don't think he's gonna kill one, <laughs> but Jules is off somewhere else. He's not fucking, yeah. and Jules yeah. probably, Jules would have been a little bit more uh, perceptive. I don't think he would have let the, uh, of yeah. course, yeah. 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 First of all, he probably would have never been messing with Melody, even before he no. quit. Mm-mm. Yeah. But we get another moment, which is song four, which is the one I alluded to. Once again, we get a song that Tarantino puts in that doesn't seem like it should work, given the context, and God damn it, it works. And that is Johnny <laughs> Cash's Tennessee Stud. This song was written and recorded by Jimmy Driftwood in 1959 and is his most covered song. Johnny Cash's version was recorded live in the Viper Room in L.A. for his 1994 album, American Recordings. This album was Johnny's 81st and marked the beginning of a career resurgence for him, with the album peaking at number 23 on the Top Country Albums chart. We're talking, this is country. This is outlaw country music, but this is not your whatever fucking country music you call today, this bro country, this pop country. (laughs) Johnny Cash must be fucking rolling over in his grave. He must be like, what the fuck? It's like, he's the man in black, and these guys are on the man in, I don't know, fusion. Or something, whatever fucking awful <laughs> lot of this country yeah. music is today. But when you see Ordell once again putting on another pair of ice donors, you're like, oh, yeah. 
Yeah. You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> he was a big OJ fan. <laughs> this dude loved isotoners to kill motherfuckers. Kangos, isotoners. Kangos, isotoners. <laughs> I'm surprised the movie itself wasn't wasn't half-funded by Kangol and isotoners. <laughs> <laughs> the product placement's amazing. <laughs> um, but when he's just sitting there listening to Tennessee Stud, it just fucking works. And I don't know why it works. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why it shouldn't. Like, none of this. This is a black man in Compton sitting in a confines of Helix State of an Oldsmobile getting ready to strangle or shoot a woman who he thinks is double-crossing him. He's waiting outside our apartment. And here he is listening to basically a live recording of Johnny Cash play Tennessee Stud. Yeah. And, and the song's not like, it's not like some foreboding song. It's basically about a guy who raises a horse and finds the falls on the girl and her father and brother's a bunch of assholes and he ends up whooping their ass and yeah. taking her. And, you know, like it really isn't anything that ties into what's going on in the song. It actually would fit more for Max if he came swooping in and saved her. But it doesn't. Very and true. It's, Very true. You know, and Very here true. he is, Ordell. Sitting outside Jags' apartment, waiting on her to, to kill her ass. And we get Tennessee stud. Explain it to me. Maybe maybe you can make sense of why does this country song from Johnny Cash work so well for that Here's part. my hot take on it. <laughs> no, but um, when I was getting ready to listen to the soundtrack again, even before starting, I remembered the Johnny Cash song at a scene. And I'm like, I know I see Ordell, but where is it? There's something about Johnny Cash that's memorable, first of all. There's something about his voice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When he's talking, he's telling a story. He's basically talking. I don't know if the guy ever motherfucking sang in this. I think he always, <laughs> I think he just talked to us always. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'm hurt today. You know, like. <laughs> On the Tennessee store. You kind of like, he does just, a, he just like gives a little harmony yeah. at the end of it. You know what I mean? And, and uh, I can't think right now, clearly, if you hear the, the, the audience, but. You do. Man, he has. You do. He has a bunch. He has a bunch of songs like when he's sang at Folsom Prison yeah. or San Quentin, where you you hear the the reaction. He's like, ah, you know, like oh snap. But um, I don't have a true answer of why it works because this is one of the rare cases where the lyrics don't fit. Yeah. You know, but um, I think it's something about how Tarantino can hear a song maybe while he's writing, mm-hmm. and and I think it's like okay. I was listening, that song was playing in the background. I'm writing to this, and it's like I'm playing it because I can see it somehow. And maybe it speaks to Ordell. There's a lot of people, you know, that we can judge and say, oh, he's black or he's Hispanic and he listens to metal, you know, and then we find out maybe Ordell likes country, you know? <laughs> it's not even a popular Johnny Cash song. Yes. You know, yes. like in the two times that Johnny Cash has used, they're not popular songs, they're not the standard. Johnny Cash song. You could have picked any one of the the, the popular ones. Ring of Fire. Any of that stuff. Nope. Wouldn't stays completely away. No, wouldn't have. But stays completely away from them. You know, he could have gone more for a crowd pleaser where people knew the song. And he said, no, I'm going to introduce you. And this is another great thing about Tarantino. He introduces you to songs that you may not know. I like to call B-sides. You know, he introduces you to these songs that Tennessee stud. You're like, why the fuck would I Who like this song? <laughs> if someone told me, if someone texts you, hey, you got to check out this song, Tennessee stud. You're like, go fuck yourself. Tennessee stud. One, <laughs> one, the word stud is very rarely used to mean horses anymore that we know in our vernacular. Yeah. Stud, you'd be like, why are you assuming I want to listen to Brokeback Mountain stuff? I'm not, that's not what I'm into. That's what you think. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you'd be like, Tennessee, fuck Tennessee. But then listen to the song you're like so you're kind of like i fucking love this song you're like yeah i'm gonna go across arkansas and whip this girl's paw whoop his brother yeah. his outlaw brother too yeah. fuck him you know <laughs> and i love how there's always a guy in there who's like when he's like you know he's the, the tennessee stud and the tennessee man the guy's like yeah 
so <laughs> fucking some hillbilly just getting all excited that, yeah, that a horse from Tennessee is with another horse from Tennessee. It's like, what do those two things matter? The horses don't know they're from Tennessee. You know what I mean? That's the funny thing. It's like, the horse has no idea. doesn't understand Ooh. states or state lines or state politics. I it's feel just, like these live versions that they pick of Johnny Cash that they play are the first time he ever played them because their reactions are like, Oh yeah. <laughs> he's like a he's like a rock star comic who just happens to name the town he's in. <laughs> Hello Milwaukee. People are like, fuck yeah, he said our town. <laughs> People, he said Tennessee. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's one of those songs that just fucking comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It's that one they go, holy shit, how did that fucking song work? Yes. But it did. It does beautifully. You know, some songs we hear, and if they're not in the context of the movie, you're kind of like, all right, I'm going to skip that song. You know, you're kind of like, all right, if I don't see it in the film, it works in the film, you go, eh, I don't want to hear it now. I don't skip Tennessee Stud ever. Never. Never skip it. I sing along to it now. So look at me. Look at me. I'm a Tennessee Stud now. (laughs) Now, this song that comes up in song five, it ends up not being the love anthem, but it is the love anthem. And it's Bloodstone. Natural High. The song was written by the band's bassist Charles McCormick and released in 1973 as the first single and title track from the band's second album. Natural High was the first song of the bands to enter the Billboard Hot 100 chart, peaking at number 10, and remains their highest charting single on the chart to date. This is the song that kicks in the second. Max looks up and sees Jackie walking to him, coming out of County Lockup. It kicks in, and it's the only time. I will say that, Tar- I don't want to say it's heavy-handed, but Tarantino is slapping us in the face and goes, if I have to do anything more than this song and this slow-mo walk and look back and forth to get you to understand that there's something about this woman that he is mesmerized by, then I don't know, go fuck yourself, leave my theater. Because yeah. it's, it's, honestly, like it's like a cold water to the face. You're like, okay. And I don't even know. Yeah, Max, like, you're like, Max is going to do just about anything for Jackie right now. Because imagine anybody else, anybody else takes his gun. He's going to have a problem with it. He knows it's gone because he goes to use it that night. He doesn't go back to get it till the morning. He was hoping he, she may have killed Ordell. Think about that. He should have left the job, gone to get it. It's registered to him, could have been used in a murder, and he let it slide. Especially the way he carries himself as being so yeah. by the book and, and yes. about work ethic. Yeah, you're right. Not for Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, he's like... What do you need, my girl? What do you need, my lady? <laughs> he, no, he, showed, he showed us love at first sight. He showed it to us. Absolutely. This song is perfect. And I'm glad it doesn't... And we're going to get into another song that we obviously comes back like four or five times in the film. And it becomes a, it becomes funny. It becomes like a running joke towards the end. Mm-hmm. Not not intentionally, but it just becomes one of those moments you, mm-hmm. which all of us have gone through when, when we hear that song exactly. that goes with this girl. When you've been there, yeah. But this song was, you know, how do you, how do you get across without having to use dialogue? He's just there to pick up some some girl. He's there to pick up a, a bond. Turns around, and you know it's true love. Because like she says, she's still got jail in her head. Like, she hasn't showered in, what, two, three days? Like, I she is not. I love about she wants to go somewhere dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's like a cop bar. The first, like, <laughs> you can tell it's been a long time since Max has had any game. He's like, what about a cop bar? How about a sports bar? <laughs> <laughs> so I want to take you to a cop bar. How do you feel about that? Yeah, this, yeah. This cop bar? Yeah, you, yeah, you've been in jail. You know, want to go to a cop bar? How about some sports? <laughs> How about some loud sports? Uh, but at least he doesn't do what they do in coffee, which is take the girl to a strip, some kind of weird strip di- diner, dinner thing. So 
But yeah, this song, and every time I hear it kick in, I can't help but think of the scene. Like, I didn't realize how much this song, for me, having not really grown up and only hearing this song for the first time in this film, or at least really realizing that I've heard this song was in this film. I'm sure I've heard it before, but never, you know, I was young, never made an impression on me because I was little. Why would a love song, you know, <laughs> seven, eight years old mean anything to me? If I were to hear it on like the 70s on 7 on Sirius XM or somewhere else, this is the first thing I'll think of is... Jackie's walking towards us. Like Jackie is walking towards Max Cherry. No man, that that kicking is like I don't know if that's when when his heart is like boom, boom, you know, like the cartoons or something. It's 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 beautiful. It's beautiful. And um, you know, he says like I don't know if that's where he says like why do I feel this way? Yes. You know, like just like yo, yes. like the falsetto. Why? Why am I feeling this way? I don't even I don't even know you. Mm-hmm. Natural <laughs> high, baby. And he's I so like cool that. about it. He's just so cool about it. He tries, you know. I mean, he's literally hitting on her. He just picked her up. And he should just take her home. Do you want to get something to drink? <laughs> yeah. It's still authentic. I think that that's why we, we Very appreciate authentic. it. Mm-hmm. But, like, when he's leaving her the message and leaving, like, how about this number and this number and the beeper? Drive, uh, write 60. What is it? Type 1622. <laughs> yes. I'm like, damn, that's a long ass message. Yeah, this, 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 imagine if the movie was in the age of texting. It wouldn't have been as good. You know, he'd just been like, oh, you up? No. He just wanted to text her, you up? <laughs> <laughs> Max Cherry, that dude only got a kiss. That dude put in work. If Max Cherry put in the work he did today, he would have got, I mean, Jackie would have had sex with him that night for letting him take the gun. That morning, he would have gone to get that gun. He would have been on him fast. He would on him like a two-year-old on one of those little rides, a quarter ride you had at the fucking game arts and stuff outside, those little horses. (laughs) She would have gave up the booty everything. Immediately. (laughs) Immediately. They had moved in the next week. <laughs> the dude was committing crimes easily. Like, the dude is committing literally a felony. He's defrauding the government, and all he gets is a kiss. Some dude gives you a thumbs up on your Facebook post, and you fucking going to town? God damn. <laughs> you know I love you, right? <laughs> oh, anywho. <laughs> it brings us to track six, which, when you first see the movie, you have no clue. No clue that our lead actress, Pam Greer, is singing Longtime Woman. This song is the opening credit song from the 1971 Jack Hill Women in Prison film, The Big Dollhouse. This was Pam's first speaking role in the film. The song was written by Les Baxter and Hall Daniels and performed by Pam Greer. And that comes from a different film, which you just heard about me say before I started talking again. It plays, ironically enough, while she's waiting for her arraignment in court. Yes. It just yes. shows that Pam Greer is, she's, she was a triple threat. But if she had been born even a couple of decades later, I just imagine the career she could have had. Some of the roles she would have gotten. Because she's a triple threat. She's singing. like People just go on like American Idol and they barely can sing and they become famous. Or they're on TikTok and they yes. sing for three seconds and they're famous. Here's mm. Pam fucking Greer. Fucking putting in work. As the kids like to say today, Pam Greer is built different. You're not yeah. built different. Pam Greer is built different. The rest of you are just carbon copies. I'm just, I'm yeah. sorry. I, I didn't know that she sang this song before. And listening to it, knowing that she sang it, again, I, I don't know if it's about where I am in life, how I value things, but it, it is an emotional thing to hear her voice, her young voice, you know, her high, higher pitched voice. And then, you, you know, because a lot of the song is weak, but you hear power in Pam Greer. You know, mm-hmm. and her acting and her voice, the way she talks, the way she carries herself, even when her character is going through bad times yeah. and you would think, oh, she's weak. Even when she is in, in fear, she still shows strength to me. When you hear that song, I'm like, wow, man, like that's 
it's like when you talk about the anthem, like, oh, what she's been through. Like, this, she's actually been through this. And you look back at how she sang this all the way back then. And she's here now. 99 years. It's just, it's, Tarantino is using Pam Greer to do her own fucking anthem. Right? Wow. Like, well, we just talked about the Folsom City Blues. Normally, you're used to listening to men sing about their prison experience. Here's yeah. Pam Greer singing about her prison experience. And why it feels so authentic, and even why it feels authentic when Johnny Cash does it, is I think Johnny Cash did do a little bit of time. Not like hard yeah. time. He's been arrested. He's done some things. I don't know that Pam Gurr has, but I know she where she's come from, she knows women who have, or even people in her own family. Yeah, she yeah. knows this. We talked about it on the episode. But like when Beyonce decides to play, was it Foxy Cleopatra, and tries to pretend like she's, I love Beyonce. She's a galactic star. You know what I mean? Like yeah, she probably yeah. isn't even, a, she's probably not even a human. She's probably some fucking alien who came down. We're just lucky to be in her presence kind of thing. Yeah. But Beyonce doesn't come across as a person who's come through a lot of struggle. That's not her fault. It's not her fault how she, you know, where she was born, how yeah, she was raised. Yeah. But Pam Greer is a person who's come through struggle. And you feel it in the voice. You feel it when they sing it. When it's authentic, it comes out. Because when they're singing it, they're tapping into the experiences yeah. that they've had. Even if it's not exactly how it's written in the song, they're tapping into the life experience. And they can feel it. And they can feel that maybe if I'd taken a different path, this would be me. What I'm singing would be me. I could be that longtime woman 99 years in prison kind of thing. Look, I've had people say things to me about how much I love them, but these are the th- reasons why. It's those minutiae. It's the getting into the actual looking of how he's made it when people say, oh, he steals things. No, he's a craftsman. He goes in, he finds the ingredients, and he puts them in, and there's always a purpose. And to have Pam Greer take a song from an old movie of hers and use it when she's going into prison, and without you knowing. That's the other thing. You didn't know. Maybe those who knew of the black exploitation films like him knew, and were like, God damn. Those of us who are were in the dark, we had no clue until you got the yeah. soundtrack, and then you're like, holy shit. Which is interesting, because when it happens, this is still in the day before the internet's really big. Like This is like three years into the internet. Like, yes. well, There's not a lot of information at that time that you could find. You'd have a better chance of finding <laughs> nudes of Pam Greer than you from her movies than you would actual information at that time. Facts. I tell people that the 90s of the web was dark. Like the yeah. web and the dark web were on the same plateau. Yeah. They eventually found out that we got to break yeah. this away. Like we got to pull this. We got to start making the internet better. It was a dark time. There oh, were so man, many things true. you could find on the internet back then. Yeah, and you know, and uh, when you said about him being a craftsman, and that's so perfect because like anybody who makes up a new dish or makes up a new recipe, they have to use ingredients that already existed in this world. So that's perfect, the way you put it. You know, he's using things that already existed, mm-hmm. just like anybody will who's, who's making something new, you know? And the thing about what you said about the, the internet, imagine how crazy more successful and how many memes there would be if this film was to come out now. Because everybody oh, would yeah. be, like, would be yeah. like, oh, that song was sang by... But Jackie Brown in this film, they they, they want to be the one who first discovered it. Yep. So there will be 25 different accounts, you know, making a post like, oh, that song was actually from the 70s, you know, and all these things. Yeah, for real. That's <laughs> what I love about films, and not just Tarantino's, but I love when a director takes this kind of time to really put the ingredients in. And it's there for you to find. Or you don't find it. And that's fine. There's some people just, you know, who don't care. You know, they just go to the movie like, oh, I don't give a fuck. That's fine. Yeah, I watch the movie. All right, move on. But it's those of us who really enjoy it, who get into the weeds and start looking at it. Yeah. It just makes you go, damn. You know, and then you really appreciate the movie in a different light when you start to see yes. it again. Once you start to get some of the information, 
is one of the reasons I started the podcast. It was more about the sharing of the information. And I don't learn this all by myself sometimes. Sometimes it's from other people. You know, it's just once you get the information, I feel like it's those old campfire stories, how stories used to be told. You pass them on. The episodes, I have a friend of mine who who he finally listened to the, the hymnal devotional. And he was like, man, this makes me want to watch the movies again. Because he already, he's not a <laughs> huge Tarantino fan. Like, you know, he's he hasn't joined the church. But it's all right. <laughs> But um, we'll get him. But he does. But he does like the movies, and he was like, and, and that's actually how I felt. Even though I had already watched the movies many times, when I found the Church of Tarantino, I was like, yo, I've seen this movie ten times, but this just makes me want to watch it again ten times because of the conversations. You know, we're picturing it in our mm-hmm. head when I'm listening. I'm picturing the scenes, the new information. But even if it's older information that I already knew, doesn't matter. I still want to watch it again because I just pictured it. Well, it's also fun. It's because you can pass it on to people. Yes. I don't take credit for anything. There's things I found. There's things other people found. You just pass on. That's the point. It's the sharing of the information. Like, hey, mm. did you notice or see this in these scenes or in this music or this and that? And then when I have guests on, they'll, they'll, I've had many guests bring things to like that I didn't see. You know, that's the great thing. That's the fun of a community like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like, it's the sharing of the information. It's the sharing of the fun. It's the sharing of, damn, did you see this or did you know that or did you know what I mean? Did you know? <laughs> yeah, it's the fun of it. And it brings us to song seven. It's actually Holy Matrimony in brackets, Letter to the Firm by Foxy Brown. Inga DiCarlo Fongwashan, aka Foxy Brown, is an American rapper who is also part of the hip hop supergroup The Firm with Nas, Oz, and Cormiga. The song is the second track on her debut album, Il Nana, from 1996. The album reached number seven on the Billboard Top 200 chart and number two on the top R&B hip-hop albums chart. This song contains samples of Isaac Hayes, Ike's Mood, and Mary J. Blige's I Love You. Nowadays, everyone's all enamored by these three ladies, but like, you got Megan Thee Stallion, you've got Cardi B, and you got Nicki Minaj. And I get it, they're all very sexually oriented female rappers. They're not the first. Foxy Brown, Lil' Kim, those ladies. Mid, late 90s, they were the first. Now, nothing wrong with these other ladies, but I'm just letting you know, you weren't first. Yeah. This is not new. We had sexualization by some of these ladies long ago. However, this song is played when, when Max goes to buy the Delphonics. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. I can appreciate, and I don't think any of us could have known, and there's no way Tarantino could have known. We could not have foreseen this coming. The CD age was really kicking in, right? So he goes to buy the tape. Like Vinyl was thought of as like you're an old person. Now that's coming back. The tape was like, okay, yeah. you got the tape. If all you had was a tape deck in your car. Exactly. You know, you could, but the you CD like was where you wanted it. Everyone wanted the CD. Because, look, as much as it's fun, tapes and records, CDs you have to flip the fuck over. You can listen to it from start to finish or skip past it quicker. For a record, if you had a song you didn't like, you got to lift that fucking needle up and not scratch it and move it to the next track. That was like a fucking science in and of itself. If you know someone who can take the needle up off a record and move it to the next fucking song, two songs in on the vinyl without scratching it and set it down perfectly, that person, you let do your task. That person knows some shit and has got some special skills. All right. That's sick. With the tape, you had to fucking fast forward and then you fast forward and hit stop and hit play. I'm like, oh, no, all right. <laughs> oh, no, went too far. Like, it was, yeah. it, that in and of itself was a pain in the ass. CDs, skip. It's easy. Yeah. So when he films Max walking into a fucking record store, which are pretty much obsolete these days, outside of your, you know, your specialty record stores, which, you know, they're popping up again, but the old-fashioned yeah, like old ones, ones. Yeah, old like school. Yeah, have old stuff, yeah. We always talk about pool shows for movies, but there were posters for all the albums that came out. In a record store, they made posters 
announcing the new album from whoever yeah. was out that time. Being able to see that's like a time capsule to be able to go back and look at it. I know. You go to a Walmart now or a Target and it's like a, a minuscule section with it's almost nothing. nothing. And they actually have a vinyl section now, which yeah. is like, yeah, I, I, I can't even get this right now. So. <laughs> Again, you know, I'm glad there's still that, but it's just, it's not the same. And I don't want to sound like some old nope. fuddy-duddy, but there was something fun, exciting yeah. about going to grab the package to get yeah, that we, stuff. Yeah, we talked about, uh, we talked about, didn't we talk about Blockbuster and stuff? Like, yeah, man. Like, it's like you enjoy going to the video store. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I had, I had the, um, the, the first car that I had didn't have a CD player. So I had the little adapter thing where you put the tape and it connected to the CD player, the portable one. I had the same. That's what I had. <laughs> I was like for a while, you know? You were hoping they would work too. <laughs> oh my God. The whole skipping thing was like, and then they had the CD player that supposedly had like a no skip thing. Yeah, right. Yes. Right. Yes. The, the, the Sony Walkmans with the shock yeah. and shit. Those are the days. But <laughs> this song is playing. And look, it's one of those songs that would be playing in a record store at the time. And I do believe. <laughs> I'm laughing, bro, because I'm picture like how we used to walk around with the cd player and the walkman in our hand like people see that today don't and you would hold on to it and if you move too fast it would skip you don't know what you had (laughs) it didn't know this is not my favorite song. I'm going to be honest. Of all the songs, I, I'm not a huge fan of this song. It's just not a it's not a great one, and I know I chose it. I mean, it's really on the nose. It's Foxy Brown. She took her name, her rap name, from the fucking movie yes. that Pam Greer's in. So, totally get it. Doesn't take me out of it. It's something that you'll be hearing. You wouldn't be hearing the Delphonic song when he walks in. That makes no sense in the late 90s. Would not be playing in that store. And Foxy Brown would probably be one of the songs that would be playing in your store when you walk in in the 90s, you know, <laughs> which is interesting because you have this 50-year-old man walking in, listening to <laughs> modern rap at the time, yeah. looking looking for a tape from the 1970s. Just such a great little contrast at of images. At least he could find that. He could find it back then. He wouldn't be able to find that shit now. No, no. <laughs> A little Delphonics. Well, now thing. you just go on, you go on Apple Music and you go Delphonics and they've got every fucking hit ever. Yeah. You know, I'll be honest with you. I don't even know what other songs that Delphonics even have yeah. outside of this song. You know, I mean, that sounds terrible. And I don't mean to be disparage them. I'm sure they're great, but I just know this song because of this movie. We'll talk about it in 10 years. <laughs> All I know is it didn't really help the Delphonics. They didn't suddenly jump to the forefront of, of music after being in this. Like some people get a resurgence. I don't think the Delphonics did, unfortunately. So do you think it would have been a resurgence if it would have happened in Pulp Fiction, though? I don't know. Well, here's the thing, is this song was copied. I'd heard this song from someone else (laughs) from the 80s. This song was, I believe, remade by the New Kids on the Block. They are the ones who sang this late 80s, early 90s. Here's my new fact that I didn't freaking know today. Yeah, there you go. New Kids on the Block. So I'm going to look that shit up just to be disappointed, but all right. (laughs) Because I like, I do like hearing covers sometimes, but yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you may not want to, but anyway. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but I already know I won't like. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not gonna enjoy it. Of all the songs I don't enjoy on the CD or on the album, the soundtrack, I should say, as I'm going through every version of this, the eight track is uh, this, yeah. is Letter to the Firm. I skip it. There's nothing tied to it. There's nothing that makes me go, oh, I love the song like the, for the moment. Yeah. It's funny because he walks in, he buys the Alphonics, and it's kind of like a little chuckle. You're like, ha there he goes. He yeah. the... Well, instead of, I guess, instead of waiting to, to the questions at the end, I'll answer it now. This well, is well, also... well, Pat yes, is fucking just riping off on everybody. That son of a bitch. <laughs> he, can't, he can't help but answer. Pat, I know you're listening, you bastard. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Shout out to him. Damn it. Shout out to Pat. That'll lead us to another amazing song. Song 8, Street Life from Randy Crawford. Randy 
Crawford is an American jazz and R&B singer. She performed lead vocals on the song, which was a single from the Crusaders' 1979 album of the same name. This version of the song peaked at number 36 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. In 1981, she re-recorded a solo version of the song for Burt Reynolds' film Sharky's Machine, which is the version that appears on this soundtrack as well as in an episode of the TV series Better Call Saul. Randy Crawford is a female. However, if I just said, hey, Randy Crawford, she'd be like, what's he saying? <laughs> This is like the second anthem. I feel like this is almost Jackie's in-life anthem. Like, we know Across 110th Street tells her a story, but I feel like her actual anthem is street life. Like, when she's, mm. when she's playing when she's driving, and, like, she's, like, upbeat while she's driving. It just has this perfect vibe that comes out. And it's, I want to say, maybe the Delphonic song is maybe more noticeable because it's played, like, five times in the film. More times, yeah. But I feel like this and 110th Street, like, really compete for, like, the two top songs on the album as far as just like that vibe like street life is like an upbeat of like hey this is street life but it's okay like we're having a good time like we live in the city but it's all right we're thriving and everything's good we're all across 110 streets like you come down this street <laughs> you in the wrong it's the wrong street life like you no, have these and two it's also like the, other, the, 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 the across 110th street is like like the intro and it talks about the drama and even summarizes but street life could be like the action of the film you know like like in her life yeah you know? yes yes yeah. like if jackie wasn't trying to con all these people yeah. when, when her life is going good street life is like you know would probably be the song that she would it's a great song even it's even, great it's song. even it even makes me want to dance like it's yeah. a great song yeah street life <laughs> 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 Yeah. yeah, and when those instruments kick in yeah. later oh. on, it's like da da da. Yeah, I, I know we're sounding. Oh, what happened to fucking horns and shit and fucking songs? <laughs> like Earth, Wind, and Fire's uh, September came on. Everyone knows that song because it's played at every wedding. But everyone knows the song, and everyone knows the horns and stuff part. Like, it seems like the eighties, the last decade to use this. What happened to fucking horns and shit? I'm gonna come on and say right here: the Church of Tarantino is blaming mm-hmm. the lack of horns yeah. in music today on <laughs> ska movement. From the fucking late 90s. When the ska bands came out with the horns and shit, yeah. they ruined it for all of us. Thank you, ska. God damn it. Imagine songs like this without the horns in it. Not even close no. to being as good. There's, there's feeling there, bro. There's yes. Feeling. Imagine George Michael and some of the Wham songs. Careless Whispers without the fucking saxophone. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. Get out of here. Get out of here. It's not even a song. It's not even a song. The fucking out of here, you fucking mook. <laughs> but no, Street Life by Randy Crawford is just that. It does compete for me with Across 110th Street for like that song, you know? Like, you feel positive when you hear it. You feel like, I think Jackie's going to get away with this. You know what I mean? Like, it it's does, just got that positive push, yeah. It has a positive vibe to it. It has the, the, the music, like I said, I honestly makes me want to dance too, even though it has serious tones to it when you think yeah. about Jackie. It's still like an upbeat song at the same time. The music itself in it, I think, is more fun and better than, than the other one. The other one, I like the storytelling better oh, for yeah, across, yeah. across 110th Street. Yeah, there's nothing exciting about 110th Street. Like, it's about yeah. pimps keeping women down. Like, it's, there's there's no positivity except for getting across 110th Street. Like, that's <laughs> like it's the goal is to get across it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you get to the street life because otherwise. Why did <laughs> the motherfucking chicken cross the motherfucking road? Because he was on 110th Street. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to get the fuck across 110th Street. He <laughs> wanted to get to that street life. He was done. <laughs> Stop being pimped out. <laughs> uh, but it leads us to the ninth song and the song we've been alluding to in that if you've seen this movie, it's the song that we know. Like if 
Natural High didn't let you know that Max had a thing for Jackie. It's the Delphonics, Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time. This song was co-written by record producer Tom Bell and William Hart, the lead singer of the American R&B soul group, The Delphonics, and was released in 1969 on their self-titled third album. The song peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and reached number 3 on the Billboard R&B chart before going on to win the Grammy Award for Best R&B Vocal Performance by a duo or group. The song was famously covered in 1986 by the boy band New Kids on the Block. We hear this multiple times. The first is when Jackie plays it on her record player when he comes to get his gun. You know, like he's, and he comes in coffee and just talk with her and he's glad that she's alive. Like, yeah. I think there's a part of him wasn't sure when he showed up who was answering the door. I love how honest he is in that scene when he's like, like, I don't know how he says it. Like, you went and got a gun yesterday? Like, you he asked. I love that. The way yeah. he just asked it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not just going to pretend that, you know, nothing yep. happened. I'm going to ask her straight up, even though I like her. I like that. And then Max does it again <laughs> a couple of times when he's driving in his car. Yes. And then. The best moment. The best moment is when it comes on when Ordell's driving and they start the car up outside Ordell's <laughs> house. And we're at the end of the film and Samuel Jackson in his brilliance and Robert Foster in his brilliance. He should have won an Academy Award for his, his supporting actor. He hands yeah. down, but we won't get to that. Is when he looks over and he goes, you like the Delphonics? And I just love it. He goes, pretty good. I just love yeah, how Robert good. Foster is just, he just plays it so cool and calm. And, and Samuel's just like, Yo, he's, like, like he's like this old cracker white guy yeah. is listening to R&B. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to even, the even Ordell had to go through his his, his freaking <laughs> fever for that song. Like, dude, if Tommy Lee Jones, this is no offense and no put down at all, but if Tommy Lee Jones won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor I know. for The Fugitive, yeah. how could Robert Forster not win for this? Well, I mean, it's Pam Greer didn't even get nominated. Even worse. Like, why didn't Jada Pinkett complain then? Come on, Jada. Why didn't you right. complain when it actually matters? Samuel Jackson didn't get nominated. <laughs> Another one. Yeah. I'm for Another the same role. One. Now that I watch it, every time he turns, I laugh. But it also part of my head thinks, like, if Max could have been in his car a couple nights earlier, and he'd been like, you like Johnny Cash? <laughs> it's been the same, <laughs> the same look to him. It's that same kind of like, wait a minute, you good. like Johnny Cash? Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's like, that good. motherfucker's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That, that would have been pretty cool, actually. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where when Max asks, who is this? Like, he's probably heard it, but, you know, we know who look Max looks like. Matt, Max looks like some people who live in Florida now. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know what I mean? They're living yeah, in Florida was, now. You that's where he was going to once he retired to Florida. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, oh, by the way, it was set. The original book was set in Florida, so he was in Florida. You're right. A lot of Elmore Leonard's uh, books are either in Detroit or, or down Florida. in Florida. Yes. If you've been in love with anybody, no matter what age it is, we've all had that song that a girl... Or guy, or whoever, whoever you fell in love with, that's the song that you connect to that person. That's it. That's why that's why it's not the running theme, because it's played in the show. So yeah. he doesn't hear that song. That's just maybe playing in his head. But it's for us to know that, oh, this is going to be the love interest for him. And mm. it, this is the song that plays, that is the song that connects him to her. And I guarantee you, like anybody out there has had their heart broken, whether you're male, female, no matter who you fell in love with, you have the song. You listen to that song a thousand times. You know that song yes. forwards and backwards. You know every music note in the song. Yeah. The minute that person leaves you, you can't hear that song anymore. It hurts too much. It takes decades to be able to hear that song again and not have some emotions brought up in you. Yeah, you either have a song you cannot hear or you listen to it in pain with a drink. But it's still yes. it's a song that brings something up that you're like, oh, do I want to hear this right now, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
something amazing. You're right, bro. And then the weirdest view, no Pulp Fiction, the soundtrack just jumps from like genre to genre. We haven't jumped much here, but we do when we get to song 10. And it is our little surfer girl, her little hippie song, Midnight Confessions from the Grassroots. This song was written by Lou T. Josie and originally performed by the Evergreen Blues. The Grassroots released their version of the song as a single in 1968. It would go on to be the band's biggest charting hit on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, peaking at number five. We aren't in surfer music territory, but it's interesting that Midnight Confessions, now after Once Upon a Time has come out, it's a weird kindred spirit. Like Midnight Confessions feels like we should also be listening to it, like when they're driving around in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, many mm. years down the road. But it yeah. is that this is Melanie's little surfer girl. This is this is in the car, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this it play it plays it plays when she's getting ready and almost kills her, and then it plays on the drive to the mall, and yeah. then again in glorious Tarantino fashion after we've had this whole big fucking to do. Lewis and he shoots her and he gets in the car and he's taken off. The song kicks back in. It's just yes, yes. It's a cheery song, and the funny thing is, is it's cheery for Lewis. He hates it when he's driving with her. It's her anthem, but he feels so much better after he shot her and he found the vehicle and he's done yeah. with this bitch. He hasn't trusted her since he fucked her. Yeah. But so it's it's a weird flip of how he's ready to kill her when this song's first playing. And then when they finally I he know, finally leaves, man. it's a whole different flip. Yeah, you, know, you talked on the on the on the panel episode, you talked about how people talked about how it wasn't as violent. And I just felt like the violence here was so much more realistic. Like when he does like he's gonna punch her. That scared me the first time I watched it. When he goes like this. Like, I, as I said, if you watch it again, the lady in the background, whoever yeah, the extra it. is, she must not know what level he's about to get to. You know, like she's probably just sitting there pretending to be in the background. She's watching Robert De Niro, yeah. you know, acting. In her mind, you can see her body racks, just how she tenses. She either doesn't know she's in a movie or yeah. she wasn't prepared for him to go that level. And she actually she's felt so for good. his for her safety. He's so good when he does that, man. Like, you know what? You know what? The only other thing that scared me as much as that, when I felt like somebody was gonna get hit and they didn't i don't know if you watch the sopranos but there's an episode of sopranos where tony basically punches the wall right next to his yes. wife that yes. scene got me i was like that felt so real you know i still take this one first though because <laughs> it's my dogs you know but wow crazy it's a great performance and it's one of those great moments because our whole film you know we when we first meet lewis he's you know we barely know him he looks like a potty such smoke weed so he loses his edge he just seems like this wilted daisy who his best years are behind him this guy's yeah. you know he's not even jordan on the wizard it's like jordan the old folks home like he he's got no game left in him and then right before this all is happening he like he clears his mind he doesn't smoke weed that day he's ready to go and he's like razor sharp he's still an idiot but he's at least yeah. he's focused and he has had enough of this of this bitch he's had enough of her and she has continued to push his button and pushed him and in that moment, you're like, oh, shit, he was going to knock her the fuck. He even says, I'm not going to fuck. <laughs> so, yeah, that was scary. Yo. I believe yeah, that. yeah. He he almost tapped into his, uh, what is that movie, a Scorsese film, mm-hmm. Why Am I Boy? Isn't Cape Fear? Cape, Cape Fear. Fear. He taps into that Cape Fear crazy. You're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, they might be brothers. <laughs> 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 they may have done a ton together. It's the music that works perfectly for who she is. What else would she be listening to? I know the way she's like it's just perfect the way her her character is jamming. It's an upbeat song after some heinous murder just went down. Yeah. It's one of the more surprising moments of his of his catalog. I never I did not see that coming. 
I actually was more afraid for Melanie to get punched in the face in the store than I was her in the parking lot. Exactly. It's hilarious. She's like, is it over here? Lewis? Yeah. Even though he gives us that hint of his violence when he acts like he's going to punch her, but the whole movie, we've seen him so calm that I don't think we would, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't expect that, you know? I love I love how the song goes off a little bit when the car kind of stalls. Yes, and then, yes. Yeah, I love that moment. And then it turn- it goes back on. Mm-hmm. And I like that he didn't panic, too. I like that he, he was like, I know my car. <laughs> I know my car. And he just turned it back on. Like, I feel like in another movie, he would have been like, oh, shit. Da, 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 you know, and they would have started this whole thing. But it leads us to song 11 from Minnie Ripperton. It's Inside My Love. This is a single from Minnie's 1975 album, Adventures in Paradise. It was co-written by Minnie, Leanne Ware, and Richard Rudolph. The song peaked at number 76 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and reached number 26 on the Hot R&B Hip Hop chart. And we hear this song over the bar speakers when Jackie and Ordell discuss how things are going to go with their plan. And it's when that bartender shoots his shot at Jackie. I and he's that. like, can I get you something to drink? And she goes, no, I'm fine. He goes, yes, you are. Yeah, I love that part. I love <laughs> and then Ordell says stuff that I can't repeat because I'm not going to be yeah, you insensitive, leave, yeah. but it's a great line. <laughs> you need motherfucking repelling me around here. So it's like that. But it's, I, that's one of my favorite funny lines. Like even Ordell is trying to shoot shot. Yeah. And this is after he tried to kill her. Like this is the balls Ordell has. Yes. He's still taking a shot at her. She had his gun up against his yeah. dick and he's like, that's just foreplay, baby. Yeah. <laughs> For Ordell, that's just foreplay. Hey, but man, that, with that bartender, every time he says that, I love it because it, it seems like a real moment. Like, he was like, yes, you are. You know, he's like proud of himself for saying that. That is a smooth, yeah. smooth line. She's yeah. like, I'm fine. He goes, yes, you are. I was like, damn. <laughs> that guy has one line. Who knows if he's got another film? He had the one line. Boom. Yeah. Delivered, walk out. Good to go. Still signed, delivered. <laughs> it's just one of the songs, again, that's in the background, and that sometimes when it plays on the CD, I forget what the hell. I'm like, wait a minute, when was this song playing? Oh, that's right. Once you realize where yeah. it is, you go, oh, that's right. That's where it was. It's a good song, but it's not my favorite. I don't hate it, but it's playing in the background, and it's not to the forefront like uh, the song from Bill Withers was. That's a little more in the forefront yeah. when, when, when they're in the bar again. And funny thing is, these moments... Almost flip on each other. At that point, we're listening to Jackie because now we'd already seen the scene where Ordell came to kill her. She took control. We're now in the con. We've had all the character introduction. We know where we are. Now we're in the actual con. So now we're in the whole, okay, how's this going to work? You know, the plan's coming together and Jackie's, you know, talking with Ordell and we're learning how this is all going to go. And she's basically, you know, telling him, this is what I want. This is how it's going to work. And he doesn't like it at first. So <laughs> it all works out. And it's one of those songs that, you know, it just disappears because the scene it's in is far more important than the music's being played. What other kind of song will be playing in the Cockatoo Lounge? Yeah, freaky ass song. But it moves us to song 12, a creepy fucking song. I like this shit. It's The Lions and the Cucumber by the Vampire Sound Incorporation. This Space Age pop song originally appears on the soundtrack from the 1971 West German-Spanish erotic horror film Vampiros Lesbos. In 1995, a compilation album entitled Vampiros Lesbos Sexadelic Dance Party was released on Motel Records. The CD consists of music that was first released in 1969 on the album's Psychedelic Dance Party by the Vampire Sound Incorporation and Sexadelic by Sexadelic. Spanish director Jesus Franco repurposed music from these albums as the soundtracks for three of his films, Vampire's Lesbos, She Killed in Ecstasy, and The Devil Comes from Akasava. And this song plays while Ordell is hitting that ganja and gets a call from Max. It's the combination of His House is Dark, the light from the TV is the only thing on, and we get the back of his head. Yeah. We're not seeing the front. It was reminiscent of the Ving Rhame shot yeah. from when we get introduced to Marcellus. Yeah. There's no other place in the film it could have worked, but this moment, it works beautifully. 
We've seen Ordell, and you know he's 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 tried to be cool the whole time. Even when he shoots Lewis, he kind of feels bad, right? Like even when he kills Lewis and when he kills Beaumont, it's business. Like he is fucking pissed. He's had enough of this bullshit. He is tired of motherfuckers double crossing him. Yeah. And if he doesn't get his money from Jackie Brown, somebody's gonna fucking die. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Lots of people gonna die. And you get that feeling. This song really starts to say, "Hey." Ordell's not playing no more. The song is perfect there, yeah. It's like when, when you started talking about it, it's like I picture, like, I think you mentioned that on the on the panel episode, his hair, everything. It's like, man, it's, it's, it's dark. But I love the fact that it's like almost like an instrumental song. You just hear like a lot of the, the, the music and it sets, it, there's a tone to it. And it is uh, some shit might go down tone. <laughs> it's like, yo, I don't know what's going to happen, yo. <laughs> and there's some creepy noises in the song. Yeah, they're like kind of yelling. It's, it's, it's almost, the best way to kind of describe it is like what you hear in the jungle at night. Like, you know, you hear like the, these birds or yeah. these animals or something come alive at night and you don't hear it. And because you have sight deprivation, you start going, what the fuck is that? Yeah. It has that feel to it. Really like, you're like, oh, fuck. Like where it's a whole other world. Like the mood of the film does change. because. Yes. When Max goes to pick him up, like even though we have the funny moment with the Delphonics, at that point when you first see you're not sure how it's going to end. Because even if you read the book, this is Tarantino. Tarantino doesn't always play by the book. You're not sure who's going to survive. You're not sure how they're going to get out of this. Even with real history, he changes it up. So, of course. <laughs> he does. We don't know. Ask Tex. <laughs> nah, I was dumber than that. <laughs> it's crazy how it starts with that song. And I expected that the song was going to keep playing the first time. But then we go into the Delphonics. You know, it's kind of interesting. It cuts the tension for just a hair. Yes. And it's not too funny. It's just Samuel Jackson being like, knowing who Max Cherry is. This white man likes the Delphonics, and just Max is cool. They're pretty good. <laughs> They're pretty good. <laughs> Should have won the Oscar for these, just the response. Just that. They're pretty good. <laughs> Robert Forrester nominated for Jackie Brown, and that's the line that they're going to put. It leads us to the final music track on this soundtrack, and that is Monte Carlo Nights by Elliot Easton's Tiki Gods. Elliot Easton is a founding member and lead guitarist of The Cars. In 1997, Easton wrote and played every instrument on the song for this album. At the time, it was a solo project for Elliot. Since then, it has turned into a full-fledged band. And it is the second song that plays. It is also... When Max walks out of the movie theater, when he goes to the movies, and he runs into Jackie, which is completely coincidental, it's playing in the movie theater. But this plays after Jackie drives off, and we start the credits after she is singing across 110th Street when she's headed off to go to Spain, and Max realizes he just made the biggest mistake of his life by letting the girl he truly loves walk out his door. Yeah. Yeah, but I remember, yeah, you're right. It was in the movie theater, and then, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's easy, right? You already got the music. Play it twice. Start in there twice. You already got the rights once, so fuck it. Start in there twice. <laughs> it's just a part of the part of the soundtrack. Nothing that you go, oh, yeah, you know, you're not jumping and kicking your heels, but it's there. The, the fun part is that it's an Easter egg that you don't notice. And the first time I saw the film, I don't think I noticed that that music had already played because he's walking out of the theater you hear this end music and it closes and then you're, you don't pay attention to it's it very once brief. you realize it you, yes. yep very brief and then as you see it before you go why do I know this music and then it's not when it hits the end the second or third time three, you go oh that's right that's what that was <laughs> definitely no, he did, and he did that a couple of times here you know three times I guess yeah he plays a few songs a couple of times he, made, he got the most out of his budget for this fucking film so the last things on this 17-track album, there are four dialogue tracks. As up to this point, it's very customary for these Tarantino films. Yes. They are Beaumont's Lament. That is when 
Who's that? It's Beaumont. Mm-hmm. Who's Beaumont? An employee I had to let go. So when Ordell kind of lays down, the like, look, I know you've been in prison a while, Lewis, but if you can come in with me on this, just let you know. There's no severance package, right? <laughs> when, yeah. If we if, if we go our separate ways, you going in the trunk of a car, yeah. and uh, I have a, I just bought myself some isotoners for the occasion. So. <laughs> <laughs> The second is the Melanie, Simone, and Sharonda talk. This is where he's talking about the girls and how he's got them set up and who they are to him. This is Ordell telling Tyler Lewis. There is no fucking Melanie mentioned in this. This is kind of as he's leading into who these these girls are. Our third one is actually from another movie. It's Detroit 9000. And it's from the movie that they're watching that he thinks Rutger Hauer is in. After he's going to go see Bowman right before they have sex. They, he kind of stops and he goes, oh, is that Rucker Howard? And then she tells him it's Peter Fonda or someone else. And it's from a, from a different movie. But that scene, that scene of dialogue makes it in to the soundtrack. And then the last is Just Ask Melanie. And those are the four that make it. So not as many. No, no. The surprising one that doesn't make it is the AK-47. Yeah. AK-47 does not make the soundtrack. Just a little disappointing, but not bad. I would have thought that was a shoe-in, you know? It's been a while since I've listened to, you know, gone back to the soundtrack. I was 100% positive in my mind that AK-47 was on the soundtrack. Positive in my mind that AK-47 was on the soundtrack. And it fucking was not. And I was like, son of a bitch, how did that slide by? Uh, Ezekiel 2517 is on Pulp Fiction. You know it's going to be on there. And you're just surprised, like, the up to that point, the second most notable probably little thing he had, and maybe one of the most notable quotes, even if people know it, from this movie, is the AK-47. When you want to kill a motherfucker in a room, except no substance. Like, that's the one that most people would know. I, mean, you know, I, wonder, I wonder why, too. Like, why? I mean, I know the other ones seem to lead into a song in some way or another. Yeah. Even look, when, when you said about Ordell's girls, what does he put? Who is he? Which is exactly what your theory was. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, I don't know. Don't know. Of those four, Beaumont's Lament, Melanie, Simona, Sharana, Detroit 9000, and Just Ask Melanie, which one of those is your favorite? Well, unfortunately, I only have those four to pick, right? So. Well, yes. Yeah. From the, yeah. Unfortunately. Bo, I think uh, for me, it's Beaumont's Lament. I like, as far, apart from me liking everything that it's introducing us to, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of weight to what he's saying that, yeah. you know, whether it's... Uh, foreshadowing there's a lot there like you say he's letting lewis know like hey don't fuck with me because i'm asking you to join me you know even though i've known you for years <laughs> you know but uh yeah that that's that's why i picked that one i i, I love that it, there's a lot of weight to it and, it and and it's just it's it's classic ordell the way he talked like he he wants people to fear him he you know mm-hmm. he wants people you know he wants to to uh, be the, 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 I guess, the most powerful guy in the room or people should fear him or whatever. So that's a perfect speech for him. Yeah, I picked that one. I would pick the same, if given the yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Now, there are over 14 other tracks in the film that don't make the soundtrack. So there's like double the album. Some of those songs are the songs that come off of Coffee, which I talked about in the last I one. think Sissy's Threats or whatever, the one where that, no, 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 don't. I, I thought that was going to be here, you know? But there's a lot of like background stuff too. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. What is your favorite track on this soundtrack? Now you have the opportunity to start telling us <laughs> the answers. Like I always tell you, it's a hard motherfucking question. Um, but I, um, the one that that means the most to me is the natural high. The first time he 
he sees uh, Jackie. Jackie. And, and again, this question, the answer would have been different years ago. But now this is just the one that really gets to me. Because uh, across 110th Street probably would have been my favorite, you know? But it's just, mm-hmm. man, watching it again. I'm like, why am I getting so emotional? This used to be just a cool movie to me, you know, and shit like that. <laughs> yeah. That's because you matured into the film. Yeah. We're, you're now in the age range that and the mature love. Like it just is. You, know, you see it younger. It's a fun film. The older you get, the closer you get to the age of the characters. Yeah. The more life you've lived, you start to understand the characters. You can really, really, you know, True. empathize with their struggle and what they've gone through. Now, what is your least favorite track on the soundtrack? I think I stopped you <laughs> from spilling it earlier. No, that's cool. But now you got a chance. Holy motherfucking matrimony. Um, <laughs> and, and it's because, um, it's not because it's a hip-hop song, because when he used, he used hip-hop in, in Django, and it was like, the, the I think, 100 Coffins or whatever. I, I, that mm-hmm. one. 100 Coffins, the, uh, the Tupac, James Brown mashup. Yeah. And, the, and the crazy yep. thing is, again, he's using this back then. And it still worked amazingly. So it's not about yeah. like, oh, the setting or whatever. I just felt like, you know, he um, usually when he uses a song, this is just me. I feel like it has more purpose. And here I wonder if it was just a setting like, oh, he's in this neighborhood or whatever. Or maybe it was exactly what you said. It was the whole that it was a Foxy Brown. Yeah, I think it was more that. I think it was, yeah. sadly, I think it was more gimmicky or trying to be a little too tongue in cheek about it. You know, hey, I'm going to use a song from a rapper who took her name from one of yeah. the films that's, you know, more than often they work. But this one. Yeah. When I listen to the soundtrack, that's the one that I would probably Probably the only one, really, mostly that I was that one and and uh, the other one that you mentioned, the uh, Inside My Love. Not that it's horrible, like it's not that it's displeasing. I actually like the beat of. I can appreciate the beat of Holy Matrimony. I just don't care for the song. You know, like I like the little piano that they use. You know, but it's the one song that feels out of place. Exactly. Nothing is, is even it's it's the and only song that correct It's the only song that's actually in the time frame from which the movie's in. But it also feels completely out of place compared to everything else. Uh, Melanie's song works because Midnight Confession works because it's for Melanie. This is what Melanie would be listening to. She wouldn't be listening to Foxy Brown. You know, what I mean? this is what she would yeah. listen to. Now, even though the Johnny Cash song shouldn't work, it works. But he also was at least smart enough to know, I'm just going to throw this in as the song they're listening to when he walks into a record store. Exactly. What is the most underrated track on the soundtrack? I don't know if you would see it this way, but for me, because of how much I like it, it would be, it will go between my favorite. Or Lions and Cucumber, because I really liked uh, the power that the song has behind that scene, you know, and, and what's about to happen, you know? I would agree. I would say Lions and Cucumber is probably a way more underrated song than probably, mm. even though, unless you know, you you know, you don't know, mm. but I would say you'd probably have a better chance of having heard Natural High yes, that's than true. the that's, Lions that's and the true. Cucumber. That's true. That, that fits better. Yeah, this, 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 it's a powerful... Uh, scene the the way it's set up it, it's it's classic what Tarantino does with a with a song that it becomes memorable and we remember it because of what was happening and in, in the setting of the song you know so that's that's why I picked that one and last but not least where does this soundtrack rank for you in all of his soundtracks it's definitely like the trouble I have is the ones that I listen to the most would be like Pulp Fiction Jackie Brown and Death Proof right but I also listen to like, Kill Bill. <laughs> But I would still put Jackie Brown in the top three. I think it's, it's definitely going to stay there. So I, I listen to it uh, a lot. <laughs> Minus Holy Matrimony. And that was
will do it for this month's Hymnal Devotional. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Frank Hannon, co-host of the Bachata Talk Podcast, for joining me. Now you can find the link to the Bachata Talk Podcast along with the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. So join me again in two weeks as Devon Taylor, co-host of the Spectre Cinema Club Podcast, and Phil Duke, co-host of Making Tarantino, the podcast, both join me to help me take a look at two of the films that helped inspire the first half of Tarantino's samurai kung fu western revenge film, Kill Bill, Volume 1. Those films being Lady Snowblood and The Doll Squad. Now, if you'd be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. Motherfucker. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.